Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. She was a, an expression of the fact that there were also good old days, not just bad old days. You know, you realize that uh, the terrain is now bereft of any significant individual in the establishment who can represent a particular way of life that was really quite important in Britain's history. And now that she's gone, I think we'll have to use our intellectual tools and our ideas to remind the world that our history is something that we have to take really much more seriously than our culture allows for. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my guest this week, Frank Freddy. Frank, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So Frank, it's a grim week for the United Kingdom. The Queen has died after 96 years of life and 70 years on the throne. And it does feel very momentous. You know, you would have to be a very old person to remember a different head of state, to have lived under a different monarch. She seems to have been present in public life forever. So it does feel like a bit of a jolt and like a bit of a shock, even though, of course, people knew that it was going to come. And uh, just to start off this discussion, I want to ask you about how historical this feels, because I know it's a cliche and it's on the front page of every newspaper that this is the end of an era, but it does genuinely feel like the end of an era, doesn't it? I think it does because she kind of personified a certain way of life, a certain moral outlook, a certain set of values that at one point in history were the mainstream in society, a Mm. world where her way of being and thinking, her idea of service and duty were seen as being the way to be as part of that establishment. And I think what has happened is that over the decades since she's been around, that way of life has become conspicuously marginal. Uh, That way of life is often seen as being, you know, out of date Mm. and belonging to a different era. And many of the people that run the establishment today, including members of the royal family, sort of have, have, in a sense, adopted a new way of being. So in that sense, the importance of the queen was that she personified this element of historical continuity, Hmm. uh, a reminder of something that is actually lost. And with her uh, sad demise, with her death, you know, you realize that uh, the terrain is now bereft of any significant individual in the establishment who can represent a particular way of life that was really quite important in Britain's history. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about what she did represent, what she did embody, the values that she embodied, or the virtues rather, one might say, in terms of, as you've outlined them there, public service, an element of selflessness, duty to the nation or duty to the crown, however you would want to put it. And also the other virtues of stoicism and forbearance and a a quite knowing refusal to engage in some of the uh, more showy aspects of contemporary culture in terms of showing your emotions, letting your feelings out, advertising your wounds to the world, all those things that people take for granted now as something that everyone does, whether you're a celebrity or a politician or one of the modern royals, indeed. 
She didn't do any of that and quite blankly refused to do so. If you look back at the moment after the death of Princess Diana in particular, when there was extraordinary pressure on her to emote publicly and she resisted that as best she could. So is there an element where we could say she almost became a kind of countercultural queen? Ironically, you know, she obviously is the pinnacle of the establishment. She was the pinnacle of establishment values back when those values still mattered, but she remained the pinnacle of the establishment in terms of being the head of state. But her existence seemed to grate almost quite naturally against some of the more problematic trends in our society, didn't it? Well, she's a very paradoxical historical figure in mm. the sense that on the one hand, she was enormously popular and she managed to transcend the different bits of the political divide. And even the younger generations who are very often quite cynical about the old establishment, the old way of being, felt that she really was something different, quite special. So on the one hand, she managed to retain a degree of charismatic presence, which really, you know, sort of was uh, unassailable and very, very unique. But at the same time as she did that, in her very being, in her actions, she called into question the mutation of the royal family mm. into this uh, group of celebrity performers. Yeah. And the values that she uh, upheld was very much uh, the, a counterpoint to that of Charles and William and Harry and all the other children. And I think the clearest example of the difference was that whereas uh, she exemplified courage and fortitude and stoicism, as you mentioned, the other royals are, uh, in a sense, uh, demonstrating their virtue by talking about the importance, for example, of mental health issues. Mm. So in a sense, there's a big difference between the new celebrity royals who, who regard people like you and me as not so much subjects, mm -hmm. but as patients. Yeah. The queen for whom the, the kind of therapeutic impulse was very alien, you know, so very, very foreign. Yeah, I was thinking about exactly that issue. Uh, and I was almost flirting with the possibility that I might soon miss being a subject of the queen. I've never particularly been a fan of being a subject. I'm much happier being a citizen of course. But if you think about uh, the difference between being the subject of a queen who embodied those values that you're talking about and represented a pretty clear thread with the history of the nation, and then you come into a new era in which we will have King Charles III and, and an in, a growing role for Prince William, and those are royals who almost treat us either as polluters in Prince Charles's case, who need to have our behavior reprimanded or be constantly reminded to change how we impact on the world, or as you say, as mental health patients. And that is the huge issue that the Cambridges are running with, the question of mental health, how to engage with a damaged populace, how to uh, fix broken people. And there does seem to be, have been a shift in, in when the royal royal family changes, there is also a shift in how we are perceived of as members of this community, as members of this society. So I wanted to ask you what impact you think the passing of the Queen will have on how British people understand themselves and how they uh, relate to the structures of power and relate to the people who are in influence? Well, I think the big difference is that 
with her gone, a significant focus signifies an, an alternative way of being will have disappeared. Yeah. Because I think what you have very often, and I'm sure you must have experienced this, you go for Sunday lunch and you're having a pint, and people would sooner or later talk about their favorite royals. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there are those people who will say, my favorite royal is, is the queen and maybe Princess Anne. Yeah. <laughs> and there are those who are into the more, you know, sort of uh, emoting, you know, sort of you know, kind of very kind of uh, therapeutic minded, you know, sort of trendy type of roles. Mm. I think that that kind of that polar difference is really quite important because it, mes- it basically means that the ascendancy of, of the therapeutic moment is so powerful within the establishment that there literally is nobody around anymore who basically reminds the population that being mentally ill is not the norm. Yeah. It shouldn't be the norm. That should be the exception. And that being a normal member of British society means that you've got resilience and you've got agency and you've got subjectivity. That's going to be more difficult to uphold with her absence because there's that absence of that alternative pole. Yeah, absolutely. I I wanted to ask you uh, in relation to that about the role of history and people's sense of connection with history or people's sense of historical consciousness, because I think this is an incredibly important aspect of of this discussion in in the post-Elizabeth moment and, and how we need to start thinking about what might come next. Because for quite some time now, the elites in this country have been almost at war with history or certainly have quite self-consciously distanced themselves from British history and problematized it in many ways. You see this in universities, in the school system, in popular culture, in contemporary discussion, this notion that British history is a very problematic thing and the right thing to do is to feel alienated from it or to feel ashamed of it. You know, and, and in the extreme form, we've seen statues being torn down and buildings being renamed and streets being renamed and so on. And I think what was also important about the Queen is that she represented a thread with history and a connection with history. And in some ways, she was uh, history made flesh in the contemporary era in terms of representing a bond with the past. And the absence of that, I think, will have an impact too. And one thing I think people in authority underestimate is how important a sense of historical consciousness or continuity is for citizenship itself and for that sense of belonging to a community and to society. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, do you think the the death of the Queen, the, the absence of the Queen will give further free reign to the project of turning against history? And to hollowing out history, and what impact might do you think that might have on how the citizens of this country conceive of themselves and the place where they live? Well, just to begin with that point last, I mean, democracy has always been about place and about your organic relationship to what has preceded you. Mm. You don't have the idea of a citizen emerging out of nowhere. You know, citizenship is cultivated through a certain political tradition, a historical tradition, and it, um, uh, a citizen embodies a certain set of values that people have fought for for generations. And therefore, the, although the term historical continuity can sound like a, an empty metaphor or, or completely a kind of a made-up kind of concept, 
it is a very real phenomenon because it's something that binds us to a, a people and to a way of life that is so important that you feel that uh, it's kind of loyalty to this. It's, it's not something you can put into words, but you feel it. And, and I think that that element of continuity and that element, that spirit which it, it embodies in an imperceptible way means that we're not just citizens, but we're citizens of a, of a common purpose. We're citizens of a common destiny. And it means that even though you and I might disagree with each other and have different views, there is something that is more important than our differences that binds us together. Now, in a sense, that, uh, that notion of citizenship has been undermined by a number of different factors. I mean, the turning against history is very important here because the new elites, the establishment, you know, sort of have this conception that uh, everything that has gone on beforehand is the bad old days. Everything that has preceded, uh, for example, the Second World War is something to be ashamed about. Mm. There are very few redeeming moments. And mm. even when I remember talking to some of these people about the Magna Carta and its importance for democracy, they would say, you know, Frank, you're so naive. You don't realize the Magna Carta was being uh, uh, an invention of these lords who yeah. are using it for their own purposes. It's got mm. nothing to do with it. They're so cynical that they cannot understand that there were a number of important steps, crucial steps that created our world today and is accountable for those values. So I think that what's not happening now is that that kind of negative hostility towards the past will gain greater legitimation and people will feel much bolder in expressing that because she was a very real living obstacle, yeah. that point of view. She was a, an expression of the fact that there were also good old days, not just bad old days. And now that she's gone, I think we'll have to use our intellectual tools and our ideas to remind the world that our history is something that we have to take really much more seriously than our culture allows for. It's such an important point about history. And, and if you read... Hannah Arendt's points on this, where she talks about the importance of having those links with the past. And she she makes the point that establishing a link with the past is not an antiquarian exercise, because without that link with the past, without that knowledge and feeling of where you come from as an individual and as a community, then your horizons are disrupted, your experience becomes more precarious, your identity itself is called into question uh, in terms of where does it come from? What formed it? What shaped it? All of those things that I think people underestimate the importance of a historical consciousness or historical connections informing those, that, that sense of ourselves and of our relations with others. And I, I really agree that the, the Queen was like a living obstacle to the all-out crusade against those historical links and against those links with the past. And I do think there'll be an element of free reign now for the new establishment to continue that, that crusade. And uh, I wanted to ask you then, in relation to that, about the new royals and the difficulties they will have in withstanding that anti-historical pressure. So if you look at, for example, Prince William's visit to Jamaica a few months ago, maybe a year ago, it became incredibly problematized because there were images of him reaching through a fence to shake the hands of uh, poor black people. And there was a huge amount of discussion about these colonial style images. And William and Kate did not deal with it very well at all and, and effectively apologized and 
it just caved in to that extraordinary pressure on them to acknowledge the problematic history of the royal family and their problematic their own problematic presence in public life and charles as well it seems unlikely to me that charles who is fairly well known for his relativism and his environmentalism and his desire to be a defender of all faiths for example rather than any single unifying faith all of those things suggest that the royals that will now be taking over won't be able to do what one might hope they would do which is to withstand that pressure to tear modern britain really away from its own past and yeah that's true uh, although charles probably has a certain sense of the past in fact mm. there are slightly uh, monumentalist ver- version of history where you see sister is a kind of dead but important phenomenon yeah and he you know unfortunately his sense of history is very much focused on nature and conserving nature and is much better at seeing organic continuity in nature than organic continuity in terms of our cultural historical experience yeah so he's got a certain sense of that but he is as you're suggesting unable to personify or uphold give an expression to britishness and and the kind of british sense of historical continuity for the very simple reason that he is drawn towards all these different so-called modern causes causes that are uh, very often antithetical to a to a british way of life he's really drawn towards a kind of primitivist you know sort of mm-hmm. uh, kind of almost pagan like interest in nature he's drawn towards religions like islam you know it seems to be genuinely you know sort of uh more curious about islamic you know sort of ideals than about christian ones mm. he seems to have a a very uh a sort of misanthropic view of of the environment and of the world so i don't think he's the right person for uh meeting the, the kind of important cultural challenges the other ones the younger ones i think have been unfortunately media trained yeah. to the point at which that they've internalized all the expected virtues they they basically assume as if they've gone to a bbc education course where they tell them what to say about lgbtq people and they tell them uh, sort of what to say about mental health problems so they basically i kind of expect william and the family sometimes soon having the union jack on the one hand and the lgbt flag, the rainbow flag on the other hand and they will feel very comfortable sometimes they will not sure which one they should you yeah. know raise higher than the other one so we are left with a situation where you know i don't see very much uh, i don't expect very much from the royal family in terms of playing that kind of classical role where the monarch you know really is and i think we're going to have to look somewhere else for uh finding a, a, an important and uh, convincing compelling way of giving meaning to the positive traditions of of british history and the british royal line and in relation to the impact that the death of the queen will have on not just on the royals but on the establishment more broadly do you think it will be a contradictory process because on the one hand as we've just been saying it will be another green light to to do what they've been doing anyway which they've been doing pretty intently even when the queen was still alive in terms of um calling into question 
the idea of of uh, of a singular Britishness or British virtues, British values, turning against history itself and treating the word tradition as as a dirty word. Essentially, they've been doing that fairly successfully, even when the Queen was around. Although she definitely did represent in many people's eyes, a block against the excesses of that kind of movement. So on the one hand, they will feel, I guess, further emboldened over time to carry on with that. But will they also potentially feel slightly lost now that they have lost an incredibly important establishment figure, the most important? And all of those connections with the institutions, really, which for good or ill govern our society. So the constitution itself, which is a very carefully balanced constitution in which the monarch plays a particular ceremonial constitutional role, or isn't there also the potential that it could hit the establishment and intensify their crisis, even as it emboldens them in some of their petty crusades? Well, you know, I think the ones that are feeling lost are going to feel lost because of this. I have more hope for them. Yeah. <laughs> and and they represent to some extent a positive response because they they have every right to feel lost, given the fact that all the uh, classical signposts are gone, and given the fact that if you look at every institution, from the civil service all the way to the universities and and, and museums and institutions of, of culture, they are all no longer playing the expected role. You know, you have to remember that we live in a, a Britain where the, the Church of England, for example, you know, sort of is no longer able to express even the most elementary foundational values that it was built upon. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this, is the, this is the Church of England. So when you've got that kind of situation, that feeling lost is a good thing because it might sort of encourage you to uh, begin to redraw the map yeah. You know, at least, you know, sort of begin to work on some kind of a way in which uh, some of those signposts can be rebuilt, some connections can be kind of reconnected in a sense. The ones that are not lost, who think that this is just great, we're new, we're doing things that nobody ever has done before, we're innovative, we haven't got any outdated ideas, we're so modern and everything else, those people are, are just going to be living in a kind of, static purgatory, a political yeah. purgatory, really kind of rooted in uh, and paralyzed in this kind of ever-present world that we're in, where the past has been, you know, they, they can barely glimmer a sense of the past. And because they're living without the past, as, as even Churchill understood and said, if, you, if you're not living in the past and you haven't got any connections, then there's no way that you can begin to secure a future. And there's no way you can begin to navigate uh, the future in any kind of future-oriented sense. So uh, what I worry about is that you have an establishment who's in this political and cultural purgatory, and instead of kicking up against it, they're going to make a virtue out of that and imposing on the rest of society their state of being. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wanted to ask you about deference and the culture of deference, because we're hearing a lot about that over the past 24 hours, there's already some pushback against the response to Queen Elizabeth's death and uh, what some people view as uh, going over over the top and them complaining about a society which would worship one woman in such a peculiar way. So we're already seeing some of that discussion coming forward. What I find very interesting about it is the, the notion that 
the age of deference was over and we were all in a new era in which we were open-minded and critical and not following the crowd seems to me to be a complete fantasy and the age of deference as it existed in the past i think it hasn't existed in in the traditional sense for quite a long time but as it existed in the past is you know it it has echoes in the contemporary deference towards something like identity politics or correct think or lived experience and all these other ideas that people now bow and scrape before in a very deferential fashion and i was thinking that some of the people who some of the younger observers and political movers who are complaining about deference in relation to the queen would be the first people to scream racism if you said a critical word about Meghan Markle she's protected from critical commentary or uh, blasphemy in a slightly different way so through accusations of racism rather than accusations of having insufficient respect for the monarch or insufficient respect for tradition so it's not really true is it that we left behind deference it kind of it, aspects of that certainly withered away as british society modernized from the 50s and the 60s onwards but new forms of deference have kind of taken their place in recent decades you're right i think there are two forms of deference that are very powerful the first form of deference is uh, what i call technocratic deference mm. where you have deference to the expert deference to the public health official yeah deference to the mentor the therapist you know so these forms of deference are really quite important because apparently they know better than you do what's in your best interest and mm. you know they basically say we have science and research and evidence on which we base that expertise and that's really very powerful and then there is what i would call moral expertise and the moral expertise is as you're suggesting you know very much linked to some of the developments in terms of the cultural politics of identity and it relates to things like victimhood mm. that somehow if you're a victim or or you kind of uh, can put a plausible case for being a victim then your voice counts for much more than if you're not and we have a situation very often where somebody who can who, who can basically claim that they know what it's like to experience racism they know what it's like to experience sexism they know what it's like to be you know sort of uh, experience transphobia or given this uh, moral authority for that and very often you'll find that uh, you have all these people sitting around and you have a transgender you know sort of teenager giving them a lecture yeah. about you know sort of what it means to be transgender and how they should learn and reeducate themselves and the uh, to me the, the clearest model the clearest uh, sentence that they use that kind of expresses this kind of expectation of deference is when some feminist or some trans transgender activist tells you you need to reeducate yourself yeah. or you need to educate yourself and what they are really saying when they uh, communicate that is i know what's right and what is wrong and and in order for you to be a good person you have to accept my version of events because when they say educate yourself they don't mean go to a library and read books what they mean is you you should basically absorb and kind of reframe my way of looking at things yeah and um that, that's right and if you look at the obsession with language and and communications and particularly in relation to something like pronouns it's almost like the new form of what titles to use when you're addressing an individual that has this almost it's almost like victorian or 
Edwardian etiquette and e- extreme carefulness in how you relate to people and how you speak to them. So the kind of policing of pronouns in the contemporary era has has those echoes and just de- definitely calls into the to question the notion that we live in a post-deference, freer, more open society. A um, couple more questions before we finish, Frank. I wanted to ask you about those virtues we mentioned earlier about things like stoicism, uh, forbearance, you know, not, I guess it, it gets problematized and pathologized as bottling it up, but we would recognize it as maintaining a distinction between your private emotions and your public role, your private life and your public life. And that line has been quite thoroughly erased in recent years. And I think one of the interesting things about the Queen is that for all the pressure that was put on her to go along with that erasure, she managed to maintain a pretty clear line between what she may have been thinking, which most of us are still unaware of, and how she behaved publicly. One thing that will be said against someone like you or someone like me who defends those old virtues, particularly things like the stiff upper lip, which sounds like you're a 75-year-old man moaning at young people, or stoicism, those values that are seen now as outdated. People will say, that's old fashioned, that's the other world. We're much more enlightened. We're much more aware now. We're aware of emotional health and emotional intelligence. But isn't it the case that actually those virtues are incredibly good and useful when it comes to navigating one's life and engaging with society? And that it is actually important, as the Queen seems to have recognized, to have a private life and a public life and to keep them fairly separate. Well, not just the private and the public life, but uh, the one thing we know from the Greeks and we know from philosophers subsequently is that we also need to have an inner life. Yeah. yeah. A part of our inner life is that we have a conversation with ourselves. Part of our inner life is that we're able to live with solitude, the uh, solitude that is imposed on us by existence. And people don't realize that very often our internal conversations is what gives us clarity and, and, and a sense of meaning about who we really are. And if that kind of uh, process of internal conversation and internal dialogue is short-circuited by the fact that I blurt out to you every time I feel something, <laughs> you know, then what happens is that it, you know, it, rather than being a, a positive virtue, oh yeah, I'm sharing information with you, I myself do not get a chance to develop my persona in, in the right kind of way because I just basically gave up on what is a, a very important uh, inner struggle that we have as part of our existence. So even before we get to the private area, yeah. there's the personal inner area. And I think that what's happened is that this therapeutic uh, culture that's been imposed upon us that kind of makes fun of people who are stoical and have this step of limit. Actually, forget the fact that in order for me to be emotionally sensitive to you and to be emotionally sensitive to other people, to be able to read people, I got to know myself. Yeah. And the way that I know myself is by having this very clear, you know, sort of process, which is a very personal, private process, as a prelude for me engaging with you as another human being. And it seems to me that it's very sad when people begin to imagine that the more you talk, the more creative you are, because talking and talking and talking and talking is actually a a way of avoiding 
coming to terms with the ex- everyday existential challenges that we have as human beings. Yeah, very well put. Okay, Frank, final question. I'm a Republican. I, I'm pretty sure you're still a Republican. You were the last time we talked about some of these issues. We would like to live, I think, in a Republic of, of Britain, but I'm a Republican who also finds myself increasingly who did find myself increasingly impressed with the Queen in recent years for all the reasons we've just been talking about, and also increasingly worried about what would happen when the Queen died, which which has now happened, of course. I think one of the great ironies from my view is that even though she was a monarch, in some ways she represented the values that would be essential in a republic better than contemporary Republicans themselves did. And by that I mean that trust in the capacity of individuals to govern their own lives, to have an inner life, as you say, to have a connection with history and to play a particular role in society. Uh, Whereas what seems to be coming in the post-Elizabeth age, and which has been coming for quite some time, is a very diminished view of the British citizen as someone who is in need of repair, in need of expert guidance, in need of the scaffolding of technocracy in order to be able to negotiate everyday life. And of course, such a diminished view of the individual has no relationship to Republican ideals at all in terms of creating that kind of society in which individuals would take their public responsibilities very seriously. So that was always one of the great ironies, I thought, is that Queen Elizabeth seem to give voice to those essential virtues of life in a republic better than contemporary republicans do. So uh, do you still feel in that you are in favor of, of a republic and what do you think a world without monarchy would look like now? Wouldn't it be more a kind of te- a mass technocratic experiment on damaged individuals rather than being a genuine republic in which we could all play a serious role in public life? Well, we live in a world not of our own making. Yeah. And I think that uh, the historical debate between monarchists and republicans is gone. You know, there isn't a, a massive cohort of support for royalism anywhere in the world, mm. as far as I can tell, certainly not in Britain. So that debate has got a very different meaning to it, you know, because there aren't the two sides in that same kind of shape. And, you know, I have a very similar feeling to you. Obviously, if the monarch had been Andrew, I don't think I would have felt that way. I would have said, <laughs> well, you know, bye-bye, that's it. You know, no, no big loss to society. But in this case, what we find is there are individuals who are, by and large, able to personify what are, in fact, historically significant values mm. who may come from a tradition that's very different than we are. And at the moment, we have to look for those people. We have to forge alliances because there are relatively very, very few of us. Now, republicanism, you know, sort of still has a meaning to it in the sense that uh, we are believers in a, in a democratic republic, in a, in a democratic republic where citizens interacting with one another on a, on a, on a basis of, of a common cultural and historical foundation or the best guarantee for creating a political system that moves in the right direction. And then that, to me, is a real, really important. Now, where you raise a very difficult question, that most Republicans today uh, don't understand what Republicanism historically, so their Republicanism is they don't like old-fashioned yeah. 
queens and kings. Yeah. Their republicanism is not their love of democracy. It's not the love of democracy that makes them be Republican. Whereas for me, my Republican sentiments are inextricably linked to my democratic ambitions. I don't care about anything else. And I think under those, uh, in that kind of context, we have to clarify very, very clearly that our version of, de- uh, of republicanism is very, very different than theirs. Frank Friday, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.